Okay. So in chapter 14 of Revelation, just bringing us up to speed, if you would, in chapter 12, chapter 13, we're, we're given a, a, a glimpse, uh, some description, uh, an insight into Satan and how he reigns and rules. We have a glimpse of it as he is the prince of this age, but in, in the tribulation period on this earth, you and I as born-again Christians won't be here at that tribulation period. We will be raptured up to be with Christ. And in that moment when we're raptured up, I, I think maybe even instantaneously, it can't be definitive at the timing, that moment, then the tribulation period will begin. It'll be three and a half years, as we've read about getting up to this point in the book of Revelation, of pretty intense um, environmental issues, uh, human issues. It'll be a pretty terrible time, quite honestly. And then halfway through that tribulation period, the Antichrist will go into the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and he'll proclaim himself to be God. It's the abomination that brings about desolation. It's going to take place halfway in the tribulation period. And then things are going to get really, really bad. We're actually going to see uh, incremental outpouring of the judgment of God, the wrath of God. It'll come, as we've read, you know, in seals and trumpets and, and bowls, different type of judgments upon the earth. So we've seen that coming up, and when we got to chapter 12 and 13, we've seen this description of what's happening here while we're up there. Well, down here on earth, we've seen Satan, and we, he, it, these chapters have revealed the hideous appearance and the horrible actions of the great hateful one. He, he literally is, he just hates. He hates you, he hates me, he hates anything created in God's image and likeness, and that would only be human beings. And he hates us for that very statement, because we remind him of the one that he rebelled against. One who really, he, you know, Lucifer, really Satan, he, he really, you know, thought he could be like God, and was booted out of heaven, the Bible tells us, and a third of the angels went with him. So his, this hateful one is, is, as we know, his brought a lot of strife and a lot of death and a lot of heartache to humanity. And it's such a stark contrast in leadership because we see Satan, we see this, this picture and personality, and, and we're able to, even in this book of Revelation, we're able to compare it to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's such a stark contrast. It's in no way an opposite in other words, he's not just the antithesis or the opposite of Jesus, this one we know as Satan. He's created by God, he's inferior to God, and he's indignant. So, chapter 14, we're going to see, is a break from the terrible things taking place on earth, as John now speaks of what's taking place in heaven near the end of the great tribulation that's taking place here on earth. I'd seen a uh, news clip here some time ago, and it was about some um, 
traffic issues they were having in Boise and Ada County. And so they had a glimpse of the traffic control room. I think for the, I can't remember what division Ada County handles that. But it was phenomenal. They have monitor money, and they have a lot of it because they got a lot of monitors. They got this row of monitors and it shows intersections and various things. They can control the timing of the traffic lights and create flow and all this different stuff. But what captured my attention is they can, they can see all these different things. Multiple monitors showing what's happening in several places around the city. I kind of see this book we're reading as that. Because when we're trying to follow the chronology it's almost like another monitor is showing something else that's taking place. It's like a movie, you know, when you're watching a movie or even a television show, and it'll show you're tracking with this one part, and then it'll jump to another person, another personality, and it'll bring that part of the story of the script up to speed or give you insight, and then it'll go back to this one. and put, You know what I'm talking about? That's what's happening as we read through the book of Revelation. That's why it's sometimes tough to track if we're trying to keep it synchronized to a chronology. This, then this, then this. Well, no, this, then this, then while this, there's this, and this, with this, and now we're going to this. And you're kind of going, okay, let me back up. So it's always good just to back up a little bit and just see where you're at. Okay, and then in heaven, this happened, and then I've seen this, and that's what we see. So with that kind of a background, let's pray. God, it is such a joy. Really, it is actually a privilege that you have invited us to know your word. Not only have you invited us to know your word, but you, because of your grace, you've made it possible because of your work, because of the, the victory on the cross. You've made it possible that we can come boldly into your throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. And we just thank you, God. You know our needs as we're here tonight. We have family situations or friend situations that are such an encouragement. They're such, an, such a strength, such a joy. And, and Lord, we also have family things and relationship things that are, that are challenging in the moment. And they're difficult. And we need your grace, your unmerited favor to sort it out. And Lord, as you would teach us your word, you would show us, Lord, the importance of putting you first, of hearing from you. Lord, we need to hear from you and what this passage will look at, how it, how it applies to our life. How do, we, how do we walk away tonight with truths that will transform us, with an understanding of what's happened in the past and what's happening in the future, and knowing that you are on the throne, that you are in control. Thank you, God, that you would teach us. Lord, where we're unwilling, I pray, God, you'd give us wisdom. We know you won't break our will and make us do your way. But that we would understand your kindness and your goodness. For your word tells us the result of your kindness and your goodness is that man would become repentant. Hunger for more of you, longing for more of you. And so, Lord, would you transform us even more tonight? That we would be even improved, so to speak, in our speaking, in our truth, in the way we walk. Improved, I mean, that we would be better vessels, that we could be used for your glory in this season. For we know many who don't know you. We know many who deny you. We know many who really are, are unstable 
and unsure in their belief about you. And so could you use us, God? Prepare us even tonight. Could you use us for your purposes, for your glory, Lord God, in this season and this time? Prepare us, Lord, by teaching us your word tonight. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 14, I'd like to read verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God." We were introduced to these men, these 144,000, back in chapter 7. We know the number. We know more specifically that they, were, they are Jewish. They are Israelite men, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel listed back in chapter 7. Chapter 14, you notice we're told that they have the Father's name on their forehead. Chapter 7 we were told that the four, the angels at the four corners of the earth that were to hold back these destructive winds that were to be unleashed, they were to hold them back until all of the 144,000 had the seal or the mark of God on their foreheads. See, God has put his name on those that are his. These men have a specific and very unique calling, invitation upon their lives. They're men that probably were appointed, maybe you could say even anointed, for this unique calling, the rapture of the church. And they were distinct. You know, many cults or different groups have tried to align themselves or claim that they're the 144,000. And it's really not that complicated. We're told specifically who they are. So unless you can prove Jewish lineage, and unless you plan on being here during the, trib- or the tribulation period, don't sign up for this job, okay? It just doesn't make sense. Um, there's this interesting thing when I made that statement. God has put his name on those that are his. Consider, even turn with me if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to look briefly at this passage in light of his um, name upon his people, his seal, his distinguishing mark. We have that as well, different than what we read here for this unique calling. But we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also trusted, speaking of Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. If you, want to, if you wonder when this purchased possession to the praise of his glory, when this is all going to unfold, I encourage you to read the book of Revelation because you're in it. That, that is, you know, that time of year, especially if you're really curious about it and maybe you're a little, you know, impatient, just read chapters 20, 21, 22, you know, kind of, you'll get it. See, you see what's said here? The Holy Spirit is the down payment, so to speak. He is the one that God has put. He is indwelling us, showing ownership. You know, most of us are familiar with what's referred to as a earnest money agreement, Correct. It's usually on a larger purchase, most often in a land sale or home purchase. And you put down an amount of money to convey your uh, seriousness, your commitment to the desired purchase. And back in the day, the simple rule was you put down as much as you knew would convey you're that serious. Because if you didn't, then they could actually say, eh, 100 bucks. On a $150,000 purchase, you ain't too serious about it. And they would entertain another offer. Well, think about that little principle. God himself has said, I've purchased them. I will give you an earnest money agreement myself. I will indwell them. I will be the down payment for them, the creator of the universe. So when you see this here in, in Revelation chapter 1, there in verse 13, you know, um, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed. He, he is, your, is the, the, the guarantee of our inheritance. What a powerful thing. That's our seal. That's our mark. We'll have a new name. There's other things we'll be fascinated by when we get to heaven. But this passage back here we're we're moving now back to chapter 14 verse 1 we see that these 144,000 are in heaven standing on Mount Zion some have questioned whether that now I and I understand I'm not definitive on this one is the Mount Zion the Mount Zion spoken of later in Revelation the Mount Zion in heaven or is it the physical mountain here Uh, who knows he says that he looked, behold, a, this lamb standing on Mount Zion was with him. So uh, I'm having a hard time putting things together. If he's, gonna, if he's seeing ahead to an event where Jesus is stepping foot on, on the earth and the 144,000 are with him, I'm, not, I don't, I'm having a hard time making that connection as I study through this. But I don't lose any sleep over it. It's just a point to ponder. It's something to consider. Um, I kind of lean towards it's just something. He's seeing this to take place. Here we have from chapter 13, the way Satan runs things in this mess. And then we have the reminder that God wins coming through in chapter 14. So um, we see in verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven and the voice of many waters uh, it's a beautiful, it's a, the wording speaks of majestic, of a powerful voice accompanied by instrument, instrumentalists playing in perfect harmony. It, it really refers more than a harp, probably the, the instrument called the lyre, L-Y-R-E, and it, it, it's probably more accurate would just be the instrument. All I see from that is like, man, what an amazing thing that would be to see and hear that and to take that in. Especially as he's just kind of went through chapter 12 in an observational sense. And now to be seeing this, as he t- and notice it says, 
Then I looked, and we, we picked up that he heard a voice. And now we see in verse 3, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the, from the earth. So, well, why can't we sing it? Well, because we, we would be lying. See, there's words to that song, whatever it may be, that's relevant to their individual calling, to what they have. You know, it, it's actually not that uncommon. They sang a, a, their song, if you would. In chapter 5, verse 3, we saw, we hear a, a new song that only believers sing, the song of the redeemed. In chapter 7, we see the tribulation saints singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, that's a song of a believer. That was a song that they sang as they were the ones who come to faith, came to heaven during the tribulation period. We know Israel has songs that only they can sing truthfully as they sing of their heritage, as they sing of what God has done in their lives. Angels have song that only, songs that only angels can sing. The 144,000 have their song. The church has its own songs. And this is all I would say in that regards. Sing joyfully unto the Lord. Whatever your song is, own it and sing it. It's not a, an individual expression per se. It's just think about it. You go back and you read there in chapter 5, chapter 7. You know, the angels could join in in the chorus, but they couldn't sing the verses because they weren't redeemed by the Lamb of, of God. But they joined in singing glory to God or exalting his name or adoring him. So I've seen that. Like, man, that's really cool that God gives us this, this unique thing. And I, I, want, I wanted to make mention of, of those groups because we have a song. And we sing at a corporate level. And we gather together. And our desire is to glorify God and give expression and adoration and, and realization. He is worthy of it all. He is worthy of it all. And in, in some, as I was sharing with a friend, I had a really great conversation about, you know, some sing, you know, maybe louder. Some don't sing at all. They just stand there in adoration. Some sway back and forth. Some raise their hands. Some have their hands in their pockets. Some sit. Some, you know, it, it's still, this, you sing, you, you, it's this expression of worship. In heaven, we're given these different descriptions and depictions and, and pictures and actual events of people singing. And, and it's, not the, it's not the voice. You can have a beautiful voice and a horrible heart. Or you could have, like me, a good heart and a horrible voice. You know, with this, God, that's not the issue. It's the person who's realizing, I, I, I'm made for this. You, we, we are made to worship and adore him, to sing to him. And so let God help you understand how that is the simple thing to always remember do nothing that draws attention to yourself do nothing that draws attention to yourself in a group sing with the group if that group is too subdued for you find another group seriously i have sang in groups that are like wow just recently you know it's been a little over a year i was with a group that was very animated I wish I had had a cup of coffee before I got to the prayer meeting because it was so animated. And I'm just like, and I didn't have an issue with it. But I found that I, I, I kind of would easily subdue it if I didn't realize the group I'm in was more animated. So I had no problem lifting my hands in praise. And, you know, I'm mentioning these things because it is confusing sometimes. 
How do we express it? When you're by yourself, do you worry about it? I hope not, because bugs don't care. You know what I'm saying? Your cat doesn't care, because cats just don't care. Your dog might be concerned about your mental health, but that, you know, still. The point is, you're, you, just, you worship. And when you're in a group, you worship as the group worships. Does that make sense? And not, not that, you know, like Becky, you know, you kind of raise your hands a little bit. That's awesome. You don't do it. So people can say, hey, look at me. I'm raising my hands. You know, I'll raise my hand. I don't wonder, gosh, if the people in the back see me raise one hand, do they think I'm only half-hearted in worship? And if I raise two, will they think I'm committed? You know what I'm saying? I just fight. I just like put a lot away and I focus on the lyrics like you're worthy of it all. You're worthy. It's this heart expression of a love for God. And I can only say practice or don't go to heaven. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, that's what we're going to be doing. It's going to be, you know, an expression and not an animation. It's be united hearts so they're thankful that we're saved and glad to be in heaven and rejoicing in the king. And it's just going to be a phenomenal thing. So moving to verse four, we'll look at some distinctives of the 144,000. They're ones who are not defiled with women. For they are virgins. Now, just keep it in the context. Don't read into it. I will just share a few things that I think it has that have relevance to it. First of all, it would speak that they, these 144,000 did not give in to the practices of the tribulation religious system. We know it'll be cult-like. We know it will be similar to, to some of the abhorrent religious practices that have taken place throughout history. By abhorrent, I would refer to even back in the Old Testament, where in a religious expression, small children, infant children, even up to a couple years old, were, were offered on this idol, heated to intense heat, and the, the children were literally fried, sizzled on this altar as an expression of worship to God. Horrible but seen by the participants as a gracious sacrificial act on their part. It's abhorrent. We know consistently those religious false expressions of worship, consistently they involve aberrant sexual practices and prostitution. That's just history. And so these 144,000 they, they did not give in to those that were at the time of the day. It also would speak of looking in the Old Testament, the terminology and wording. They have not committed spiritual adultery as Israel had done in the past, where Israel had given herself over to the pleasures of this world rather than committing to God. And you'll, you've seen it a lot in reading the Old Testament, that analogy that God drew, speaking of, you know, his chosen than going and whoring around with the things of this world and coming back like a, to, the, to the temple, so to speak, and pretending like everything's good. And then there's also, I would say that according to 1 Corinthians 7 and some other considerations, they were probably single. I don't, I don't believe that they were married, but um, I think there's sufficient reason to believe that they were not. Now, some have said, well, you know, what does this say about the marriage, you know, I mean, if, if they, were, they were not defiled with women. See, marriage is God's design and blessed by him. The means of procreation involves physical contact. 
And so it's blessed by God when it's put inside his parameters, his desi- his, within his design. Married does not make you better before God. Um, it's God's design. But if you're invited and called to be married, then marry. If you are called, invited to be single, remain single. And the 144,000, I would suggest, chose to be obedient and did not seek the pleasures of this world. And that's what this is speaking of. They were set apart. They chose to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I believe it speaks of wholehearted commitment. In verse 5, their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They're without fault for the same reason you and I are. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. They were uniquely enabled in this point in history that's coming, the the start of the tribulation period, to be his spokesman. Consider Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do heartily as unto the Lord. Don't be a man pleaser. Don't try to, you know, just, just do it heartily as unto the Lord. And I think that's a good picture of what we see in these particular men in this time. Now, moving on to verse 6. Then I saw another angel. So he sees this taking place. He sees Jesus, the Lamb, standing in Mount Zion. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. So then, so he sees this. Now on this monitor, if you would, he's like, then I see this. Or maybe this came across in front of this. I don't know that particular, you know, visualization or what was actually taking place. But preaching from the midst of heaven to those who dwell on earth, the message is fear God. We see there in in verse 6, you know, or verse 7, fear God and give glory to him. There's two things to remember and realize. Fear God means something different to a non-believer and to a Christian. They're they're, they're the same words, but there's two different exhortations. Fear God to an unbeliever is there will be judgment for your rebellion. And in this context, your judgment is on the horizon. You're, you're running out of days. You're, you're going to defy God to your demise. And you should fear that. You should be aware of your creator, who he is. To the Christian, fear to the, to, from a fear of God to a believer, it's a different thing. We revere God. We hold that relationship in the highest regard, higher than any other. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's when we realize, oh man, I... Because you know, ultimately, in simplicity, that relationship affects every other relationship. And so here this message is going out, you know, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. I would see in this, worship the real creator, not the imposter, the deceiver, the misleader. Going on, now we pick up in verse 8, another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Another angel we see, Babylon. It's satanic, or actually I should say Satan's system to seduce men 
into following an earth-oriented type of rule and government. Because it's earth-oriented, it's earthly, sensual, and demonic, the the wisdom James speaks about. And so it's a type of government that appeases or appeals to the flesh. It promotes individual power. Um, it's, 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 we'll see, actually, we're going to get into it more in chapter 17 when we get into uh, where the Babylon, that whole thing is addressed. But just see what happened. We're in Zion, the Mount Zion. There's the angel, and then another angel, and now we see, and another angel in verse 8. Verse 9, then an then a angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall bring torment. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This third angel, basically I would summarize that by saying this is a warning. Know who you are worshiping. Those who take the mark of the beast will do it knowing full well what they're doing. Early on in COVID, um, you know, people were you know, we're figuring out what's going on, and then we start rolling into 2021, and, and then there's this push for um, an injection that was titled an immunization, but people were concerned, it, is that the mark of the beast? And there was actually a fair amount of poor teaching, or misle- it was actually good misleading. If you're trying to mislead somebody, they did a good job of it, implying that that was actually the mark of the beast. Understand this, you're not going to wake up one day and have some mark that you didn't realize what it was. This is clearly speaking of those who receive it are worshiping the beast. They're worshiping the system. They've rejected God. And they won't just inadvertently, accidentally find out three months later that that was the mark of the beast. They will know full well, because literally it's what it says, you know, that they they will, um, who worships the beast and his image and receives his mark. On his head. Verses 10 and 11, you know, there are consequences to your actions. Reject God, and you'll experience the consequence of those decisions. It's, it's as clear as can be. God has said that to humanity since the Garden of Eden. Do not eat of this. And there was consequences. There was, we would say blessings and cursings, but they really both fit into consequences. Could we maybe reason it that way? So if you do as God directs you, you'll experience good things because he wants the best for you, the good for you. If you choose to go against God, you're choosing, kind of open yourself up to what this world has to offer and the consequence of rebelling against him is he will bring correction. He will bring correction. Now if we deny him and say, I don't want, to, I don't want anything to do with you, as some have really boldly said, even verbalized, I don't need God, I don't want God, I'll rot in hell for all I care. You know, you'll, you'll get your request. God will honor that demand of yours. He won't send you to hell and you didn't know you had the ticket. You will make the request, you will make the requirement, you will make the demand, and then you will end up there. So we see here, you know, and it's, it's an interesting thing happening because as the wrath of God is being poured out, the call of God is continuing. The two witnesses, 
We know they went around. We know the 144,000 were declaring during the tribulation, during the wrath, God is extending mercy. His love, I would say with tears, he's having to pour out wrath. Not, not that he regrets the wrath, but that people would continue to reject him. And he continues to, to send, if you would, his spokesmen. And even here, where as we read through this, we see that there's even angels that are declaring the, the message of the gospel. And at the same time, there are instruments being, that are pouring out his wrath. Some people say, how can God do this? Like, he's perfect in all of his ways. And he's so gracious and kind and loving that even in the midst of all this happening, he said, I I have not closed the door on you yet. But there is a yet. You know, there is a point where he does close the door. So the tribulation period, you know, um, if we reject Christ, we choose to be eternally separated from him. and, And that's really what is being declared you know, it's hard to even imagine what this would look like. Can you, can you even try to grasp? To drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. To defy God in such a way that you would just, you would ask for, you know, you, you would arrogantly be saying, show me what you got. And trust me, you couldn't handle it. There's no way you could handle it. Moving on to verse 11. We have the same thing. It's a continuation. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So hopefully that will give you clarity. You don't just inadvertently end up with it because the economic system was bad. We could have economic catastrophe. We could even have the uh, beta version, the trial run of a one-world monetary system and a one-world government before the rapture takes place. It could be that way. I don't think it will, but there's no scriptures that would let us be definitive. So we got to realize that. Let's just make sure as we go along. If in order to buy and sell, I have to bow my knee to that mix of humanity and technology... If I have to bow my knee to this world system and deny worship of God, I'm going to starve. I'm not going to do it. And that, that, that is, you just have to have that in your head, if you would. So as we see now, verse 12, here is the patience, patience, endurance, steadfastness, uh, perseverance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So this steadfastness, this patience, this enduring during the tribulation period, because you come to Christ later, in this, say, the last three and a half years, you're, it's going to be in the midst of great adversity and, and horrible, unimaginable trials and suffering and pain in these last days of the tribulation. Death is a blessing. It is a promotion. It is a point of relief. That's really what this passage is saying. Blessed are those who die in the spirit from the Lord. Now, we could kind of say that now, right? It's like, man, I'd rather, be, I'd rather not stay. I, my body is not participating well in this thing called longevity. It's just not, it's just not holding up its end. 
To be absent from the body would be to be present with the Lord. Part of me would rather depart. But then Paul said, but it would be better if I didn't, for I could then fulfill my purpose in declaring the gospel and living out the love God has given me. I'm paraphrasing for you. So, we have a purpose to proclaim the great gospel of God, to declare of the one who is called Jesus, who is the Christ. So it's better for us to stay. I believe at this point in the tribulation that we're reading about, it's better to depart. Let the 144,000 tell. Let the angels declare. Because it's going to be so pressed so hard and so terrible. It says right here that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So now on is that time. It's not where you and I live. It's now from that point on. Moving on to verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of his temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in the sickle, his sickle, on the earth, and the earth was reaped. It's given us a picture of harvest time. It's speaking of judgment. When this speaks of harvest, it's in the scripture, oftentimes it's referring to judgment. God has been patient, and this refers to the time has come. The door is closing. It is time to go through the last days of the last days of the tribulation days. And that's what we see unfolding here. Uh, verse 17, then another angel. We got angels showing up everywhere. You know, they're, I literally, I mean, you, you read through this, and I think it's specific and distinct. They're different. In other words, it would be saying, then that angel said, or maybe he would have put a name on him, who knows. But just track. The angel came out of the temple, I'm reading in verse 17, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Angels have assigned tasks, have distinct purposes. This chapter really shows that to us, the distinct purposes serving the living God. Remember that as interesting as that is, we are his children, and his child, as his children, we are greater than the angels, according to the context of Hebrews chapter 1. So when you hear somebody, and I think it's, you, you have to have a lot of empathy and compassion and kindness. But when someone says to someone, well, you know, they, I know it's hard losing your husband, but God, just, he just needed another angel in heaven. Just, just smile with them and let them, you know, learn to be quiet. <laughs> just, you know. The, the husband's not getting a demotion. You know, we're not, and we, we are actually placed as his children. 
And with that, I, I would like to say we have distinct purposes as well. We have a unique calling and an amazing opportunity. And so this angel has a job as the others have and, and seems to serve with gladness, with clarity, with understanding. He is in, he's just come out and he went forth as he's supposed to, doing what he's supposed to do. But we have a symbolism and we have a, a picture here that, you know, God is painting for us. And so we can see, you know, the grapes, we're told, are fully ripe. Thrust in your, your sharp sickle, the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. It can mean a couple of different things. One thing we, we see from this is that from the context, knowing the timing, knowing what's happening in the days, the grapes are fully ripe can mean overripe, they're dried, they're withered. Concerning the salvation message, the world is withered up at this point. They're not receiving it. And so it's time to harvest, to cut that down. Now, we also see, speaking of there in verse 18, they're, they're fully ripe. It can be seen, they're, they're plump, they're, they're full of juice, they're slightly past ready. And I would say that concerning the wrath, this is the time to do it. This is what God sees. And now is the time. He's been patient. He has been merciful. He continues to declare his, his invitation to humanity. But there is a line in the sand, so to speak, when it, it no longer. And the analogy is saying for judgment, it's now is the, the time to do it. Verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Crushed grapes, pressing anything of value out of them, rendering them totally useless. So you see what's happening. That's the picture that's being presented as humanity rejects God. It goes on in verse 20, and we see the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for about 200 miles. It's a picture of um, the juices flowing from the winepress, and it conveys even that imagery of, of of life, you know, the life of humanity. Blood is representative of life. Um, saying that the, the, it would be up to the horse's bridles, a lot of discussion about that. And, and when it, the, there's just two simple ways to see it. I don't think it's overly complex. Um, it's very possible that that would speak of an actual deep river of blood from all this carnage that's going to take place. It's referencing in and around Jerusalem. It's also possible that it speaks of the juice that splatters up as the grapes are crushed and then the juice flows from the wine press, splatters up to the height of the bridle. So that's just there's a couple ways you can look at it. Um, I think with the, the amazing battle that's going to take place at the very end, Either one of those could be very real, but we get what it's saying. You know, it's a very graphic, disturbing picture, seriously, when you think about humanity and life and people that, that, that have rejected God and defied him so much and so long and have endured such terror, such pain, such even atrocities, one on another even, and that they would still not turn to God. And, and, and they've seen so much, and then they're willing to just say, I'm still not going to move. I'm not going to change. 
Chapter 14 is a necessary culmination of chapter 13. Chapter 13, it appeared that Satan was winning, remember? He was triumphing over the saints. He seemed to be victorious in almost every way. Evil was triumphing. God was dead. But chapter 14 gives the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. God is victorious. He triumphs. Satan is as good as dead. He, technically speaking, is dead in the sense that it's not going to change. The day hasn't arrived that he will be locked up for eternity. But it's, it's not going to, there's nothing that's going to change that for him between this moment we live and in that point down the road when he is locked up. I want to finish with a, a song. I'm not going to sing it. I love you guys too much for that. Um, but uh, you actually know it, and I, I like the last part of it. The Battle Hymn of the Republic was written with these words in mind, these verses we just read. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. That is reality. We read these chapters, and, and I know for some it's been really difficult. If you're not grounded in your faith or you're still just struggling on some principles, to read through some of this stuff, it, it's, it's the stuff that nightmares are made of, seriously. If you don't understand the ending, if we don't see his truth is marching on, these things are unfolding before our very eyes. More than any other point in history, we have seen a transformation, a, a uh, radical change in a two-year period that compares to no other point in human history. That's just a radical change. We've also seen within that change prophetic fulfillment over the last hundred years. Prophecies being fulfilled at a pace none, that compares to none. The only other time that would be a more rapid fulfillment of prophecy was at the declaration, birth, and birth of Jesus Christ. Now we're seeing his due return soon. And so his truth is marching on, and I'm all big on sticking close to him. You know, let's pray. God, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for your blessing, your presence. And Lord, we're, we're, we are disturbed in the sense of our senses. Or there's nothing beautiful about um, what happens to humanity, what people will endure. But we know your ways are perfect. There's nothing, uh, there's no flaw in your character. There's, no, any, there's nothing missing about what you must do. And so, Lord, we, we realize your grace is sufficient. Your love is extended. Your mercies are new every morning. And we pray, Lord, for that outpouring of the Spirit, for that work in our hearts that will free us from the pursuit of the pleasures of this life, free us from a desire for having things that we don't really need in the first place. Awaken us so perfectly, so gently to your call on our lives in this season at this time. That we would know your voice. That we would be people obedient to you, Jesus. Not based on what that obedience produces, but simply what that instruction you would give us would be. 
And so, God, we just thank you. Teach us and show us. Lead us, Lord. We look forward to your soon return. But while we're here, may we fulfill your purpose for us as you have equipped us to be your agents of declaring and representing and living the good news. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.